And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the phone line with us today is Dr. E. Calvin Beisner, founder and national spokesman for the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. Uh, Cal, it's a real privilege to have you on with us today. Well, thank you very much, Dan. The privilege is really mine. I very much appreciate your giving me the opportunity. You know, I've been trying to pay attention to the debates about climate change, and some people feel very strongly that what we call anthropogenic or influenced by humans climate change has become a greater danger than either nuclear weapons or terrorism. You know, Cal, even in a recent political debate, I noticed that one of the candidates made reference to bringing jobs back from China so that the amount of global CO2 would be reduced. And then I've also seen on the news some very real threats, and that is um, the dire pollution situation in places in China, Beijing and others. Um, yeah, air pollution is a with dangerous smog full of particulates, uh, forcing people to wear facial masks. Uh, I think that's quite a bit different than the so-called climate change debate. And, um, you know, we all agree that smog and particulates need to be reduced. Absolutely. But uh, this climate change thing, it's become a, an emotional issue. And, and beyond that, um, it's, it's also driving, for example, the U.N. to try and make binding laws that will have crippling effects on us. Uh, and it's very, it seems like it's very, very difficult to have a reasoned adult discussion about this stuff. So today, uh, Dr. Cal Beisner... I'm wondering if you could just start start us off talking about what what is this whole thing about climate change and the debate and help us get a, a godly perspective on it. Yeah, it's a it's a very big picture to be looking at, uh, and it can be a little difficult to boil things down a lot, but we'll do our best. You referred to one candidate, and I believe it was him and Bernie Sanders in one of the Democratic debates. Uh, tying uh, climate change and fears of it to uh, the issue of trying to bring jobs back from uh, China to the United States, uh, and that would, in its, in its turn, reduce CO2 emissions and so reduce global warming. I think that's a great illustration of how politicized this issue has become. Uh, it was not even possible for uh, Senator Sanders in that context talk about it without tying it to the highly political issue of uh, are we losing American jobs to China? Is there a way to get them back? Uh, But really, we need to, as much as possible, uh, try to address the scientific aspects of the global warming issue uh, in isolation from the political aspects first. It's, uh, It's not a bad thing to recognize that there are political aspects when we start trying to talk about solutions, but we really have to look as coolly and objectively as possible at the scientific issues first. And that really starts with, uh, with looking at uh, the, the basic theory, which is that carbon dioxide, which is released when we burn fossil fuels, coal, oil, and natural gas, uh, because it absorbs some heat bouncing out from the surface of the earth toward outer space, because it absorbs some of that heat and then re-radiates it out, uh, and some of that radiation uh, of heat comes back down to the surface of the Earth, uh, CO2 is therefore referred to as a greenhouse gas, a gas that warms the surface of the Earth uh, by 
by trapping some of the heat and, and sending it back down to the surface. And that's, that's the basic physics of it, and it's, very, it's, it's really quite widely embraced. Uh, there's not significant uh, question about that, and certainly I don't question that, uh, and neither do any of the many, many different uh, scientists I know who question dangerous man-made global warming. And the, the stress really is on that word, dangerous. Here's something that can help us, I think, to get a little perspective. Uh, the entire increase in global average temperature that appears to have occurred from about 1850 to the present, uh, this is a period of uh, 175 years, uh, 165 years, pardon me, uh, that, that entire increase is about eight-tenths of a degree Celsius. Uh, that would be... Um, about 1.6 or so degrees Fahrenheit, something. And the the normal swing in temperature uh, from cold to hot in a given day in most locales is multiple times that much. And the normal swing in temperature from uh, or in average daily temperature from midsummer to midwinter in most locales is many times that big a swing. So even with the full 8 tenths of a degree Celsius of warming that's occurred since, the, since 1850, which, by the way, was the end of what uh, uh, historians call the Little Ice Age, uh, you don't have enough change in temperature to really be something to worry about. My friend, Dr. Richard Lindzen, who is a uh, he's emeritus professor of, of uh, uh, atmospheric physics and meteorology at, at uh, MIT. Uh, Dick just says, you know, our response to this should be, so what? Ho-hum. Uh, and then we have to recognize that human activity, our emissions of CO2, have probably you know, contributed something to that eight-tenths of a degree, but we really don't know just how much because we don't have a firm handle on how much the various different natural contributors cause in the way of that warming. So then we have to say, well, so what about the human activity as well? Um, and then, of course, there is uh, a great deal of debate going on about just how much that is. Uh, some people will say that adding CO2 is going to cause the atmosphere to warm very rapidly and in a dangerous way. Uh, but that prediction is based entirely upon computer models, not on real-world observations. And the models, on average, predict two to three times as much warming as is actually observed over the relevant period. Ninety-five percent of them predict more warming than is actually observed. And, you know, if their errors were random, you would expect them to be above and below about equally often and by about the same amount. But instead, it's 95 percent or above, and they are two to three times the actual observed temperature increase. And then finally, none of them predicted the complete absence of statistically significant warming from about 1997, uh, the start of 1997, to the end of 2015. Uh, it's a period of uh, roughly 18 years, 10 months. Um, uh, so the models are wrong, and if they're wrong, they provide no rational basis for any predictions about future temperature, and therefore also no rational basis for any policies that we might want to put in place to try to affect future temperature. Uh, that that's a fairly simplified way of putting it, uh, but I think it's accurate, and uh, the the referee literature reflects this uh, 
as does uh, a great deal of, of uh, empirical research that is ongoing. Well, that's helpful. And um, CO2, uh, most of us have learned in school that CO2 is something that plants use. Um, yes. And yes, it's called a greenhouse gas, and you've spoke to the physics of that and how it affects things, but um, is it a dangerous gas in itself? Well, you know, a pillow can be a dangerous thing if it's pressed down over your face and prevents your breathing. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so, so, you know, the, the question regarding pretty much any substance is at what quantity, at what concentration, and applied to human beings in what manner? Um, uh, you know, uh, water itself uh, is toxic at high enough levels. You can actually, it is possible to drink so much water so fast that you, uh, you exceed the capacity of your cells to process that and, and remove it from your body, uh, and uh, you, you actually can kill yourself that way. So, you know, if water can be dangerous that way, so can anything else. But water is only that way at an extremely high concentration in your body. Well, it's similar with carbon dioxide. Uh, the background level of carbon dioxide before the Industrial Revolution in the atmosphere uh, was about 280 parts per million. That's 28 thousandths of 1%. Since the beginning of the, of the Industrial Revolution, by our burning of fossil fuels to provide energy, we've raised CO2 concentration in the atmosphere to about 400 parts per million. That's about a 42% increase. It brings it to about 40 thousandths of 1% of the atmosphere. Now, we know that human beings can breathe an atmosphere of well over 5,000 parts per million uh, for very long periods of time. We're talking you know, months and months and months on end uh, without serious, uh, serious harm, with no, no significant risk whatsoever. And so in terms of, of a risk of toxicity, CO2 doesn't get there really until well above 8,000 parts per million, and even then it has to stay at that level. You have to keep breathing it at that level for a very long time. Uh, and, in fact, even the, uh, the, the U.S. Navy uh, doesn't, uh, doesn't consider it um, dangerous in submarines until well above 8,000 parts per million. So CO2 is not at any levels that... Uh, could even be achieved by burning all of the fossil fuels existent in the earth. Uh, it is not at any levels that could be achieved uh, a toxic thing, a dangerous thing. It is, in fact, very good, as you mentioned, for plants. For every doubling of CO2 concentration in the atmosphere, you get an average 35% increase in plant growth efficiency. Plants grow better in warmer and cooler temperatures and in drier and wetter soils, which means that they expand their range. Uh, quite the opposite of the idea that, uh, that adding CO2 to the atmosphere is somehow or other going to, uh, going to put uh, some species in danger. It actually increases their range. It makes them grow much better. They, you know, they resist diseases and pests better. Uh, they make better use of soil nutrients. They improve their fruit-to-fiber ratio. And the result is more food for everything, uh, more food for the animals that eat only plants and 
more food for the animals that eat both plants and animals and more food for the animals that eat only other animals because ultimately plants are at the bottom of the food chain. So uh, rising CO2 in the atmosphere, uh, while it causes a very little amount of added warming to the atmosphere, causes a tremendous improvement in plant growth, which means more food for everything, and that's especially poor and good for the poor around the world. Yeah, right. Uh, that's that's very helpful. Um, uh, this may be a, a side discussion, but as you were talking, something popped into my mind besides this scene in China uh, of real pollution. Yeah. Sometimes we see volcanic eruptions, and a lot of stuff gets in the atmosphere. Yes. How does that compare to uh, me driving down the road with my little CRV for 20 years? <laughs> <laughs> well, you're, you're driving down the road with your little CRV, or for that matter, with a, with a great big diesel <laughs> truck. Uh, puts hardly anything into the atmosphere compared with what volcanoes do. However, by the way, that is not a reason to jump right straight to the conclusion that volcanoes are a far greater source of CO2 to the atmosphere than human activity. As a matter of fact, total volcanic emission of CO2 into the atmosphere each year is uh, typically significantly less than human emission of CO2 into the atmosphere. Um, and uh, the big issue here, and, and some people who try to, uh, you know, who try to minimize human impact on the climate will say, oh, no, every volcano that erupts puts more CO2 into the atmosphere than all the human activity put together. That's actually factually false. Uh, and even if it were true, though, the real issue is what happens at the margins. Now, the volcanoes uh, have been around for the entire history of the planet, and they continue you know, in, in cycles up and down how frequently they, they erupt. The difference that's brought in is the human activity. And as we put more CO2 into the atmosphere, we clearly have been increasing the CO2 concentration. Uh, that's not something about which we need to argue. The real arguments are about how much added heat comes from that. And the empirical research, as opposed to the climate models used by, uh, like the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, Empirical research indicates that the warming effect of that added CO2 is very, very small indeed. And in fact, it gets smaller with each new increment of the CO2 because its absorption effect is what is called logarithmic. You can illustrate it this way. If you have a, a glass window, a, a clear glass window, and you paint over it a coat of white paint, you're going to cut out an enormous amount of sunlight coming through that window. But there will still be some. Now, if you paint a second coat of white paint over that, you'll cut out some more sunlight. Now, the result is more total sunlight cut out, but that second coat didn't cut out as much as the first one did. Now, do a third coat. You'll cut out a little bit more light, but not much. And a fourth coat, a tiny bit more, but not much. Well, CO2's heat-absorbing effect in the atmosphere is the same way, because it absorbs heat or infrared bouncing back from the surface of the Earth only within particular wavelengths. And those wavelengths are pretty close to saturated with CO2's absorption effect. And therefore, adding more and more CO2 has less and less effect for every, say, 100 parts per million that are added. What about, um, I'm thinking back again at China, <laughs> um, yeah. and the pictures we see 
what is the problem there in China? Why so much? Yeah. Why so much junk in the air? Yeah. Well, there's a lot of junk in the air in China because they are attempting to uh, provide a vast amount of energy for the very rapid uh, growth of their economy through industrial activity, and they're doing it uh, at a stage of their economic development. Uh, where they're still a pretty poor nation, certainly by comparison with uh, the United States, Western Europe, other uh, you know, long-term industrialized countries, they're still pretty poor. Now, it is possible to burn coal as well as natural gas or oil, um, though we don't typically use oil for generating electricity. It's much too valuable as a transport fuel. But it's possible to burn coal and natural gas very cleanly with uh, hardly anything but CO2 coming out of a smokestack. <laughs> in fact, it becomes wrong to call it a smokestack uh, because it's not really smoke. Smoke is those, those uh, solid particles, those very, very tiny uh, solid particles of soot. Uh, that's actual carbon, uh, and it's black, it's solid, and it is really, truly dangerous when you breathe it, whereas CO2 is a gas, and it's uh, transparent, uh, no smell to it, no taste to it, and it is not dangerous to you at uh, even at levels coming right straight out of smokes, uh, out of the, the emission stacks at uh, power plants. Um, but what's happening is they are going through the same transition that we did. If you go back to the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, in places like Pittsburgh or Los Angeles, uh, places with high industry and with a lot of use of coal-fired uh, uh, electricity generation, or in Pittsburgh, for instance, a steel-producing city, coal uh, furnaces for, for uh, heating and, and uh, refining iron ore and turning it into steel. Well, there was a whole lot of smog coming out of that, a whole lot of very bad emissions. And that's because it's expensive to take those emissions out, and the technology took time to develop. Well, China is behind us on that, but it's going through the same transition. What happens is that in early industrialization, pollution emissions rise, but the, the benefits of the various different things created by the industrial activity far outweigh the risks. And we know that because human life expectancy rises at the very same time that the pollution rises. But then you reach particular levels of economic development, and people now can afford to adopt the cleaner technologies so that then they cut their emissions. And that's what's happened in the United States, and it's already beginning to happen in China. They just happen to be behind us, and, and actually they're going to go through that transition much more rapidly than we did because the technologies have already been developed, and that means that they don't have to go through the very expensive research and, research and development stages uh, before they can apply them. You mentioned coal, and... Um I'll bet a lot of people have a really dim view now of coal yes. based on um, the news and the media and the political correctness. I was reading an article the other day, and it was talking about businesses in West Virginia, particularly the coal mines, how that so many times we see another coal mine shutting down, yes. and it's affecting families, and men are losing their jobs. Um, but you also mentioned that coal can be burned very cleanly so that the only thing that comes out pretty much is some CO2. What is the case in the United States? Um, I would think that our power generation plants, some are still powered by coal. 
Are yes. these relatively uh, clean plants? Yes, they are relatively clean plants. Now, the, the much older plants are a little less clean than the much newer plants. Uh, and there's a, a, a really sad irony in this. The uh, What's called the clean power plan set forth by the U.S. EPA recently um, actually makes it much more difficult to build new coal-fired power plants. But those newer ones would burn more cleanly than the older ones. So the, it creates an incentive to keep those older ones online longer. Um, so that's one part of the irony of it. Another part of the irony of it, of it is this, that, that it does disemploy so many people from the coal mining industry, the coal transport industry, and so on. And uh, that's really causing terrible havoc to, uh, to economies in places like West Virginia or Montana and Wyoming, major coal-producing states. It's also pushing up electric prices, electricity prices. Uh, President Obama, when he was a candidate in 2008, said that if he were elected, electricity prices would necessarily skyrocket because he intended to make it uh, impossible to continue generating electricity with coal through his regulations. Now, uh, what's, what's happened with coal in the United States is that uh, more and more plants have been forced to shut down because it's next to impossible to achieve the CO2 emissions uh, uh, restrictions that are required now by the EPA as a means of fighting global warming, though in fact even the achievement of those restrictions would have no measurable effect on global average temperature. Uh, But as the EPA has clamped down new emissions regulations on CO2, it has driven up the cost of generating electricity from coal. At the same time, breakthroughs in hydraulic fracturing and horizontal drilling in the uh, natural gas industry have pushed the price of natural gas down very rapidly, and the result is less and less demand for the use of coal. Now, I am one who says government shouldn't be picking winners and and losers, so if natural gas becomes so inexpensive to pull out of the ground and and take to... uh, electric generating plants, that uh, coal can't compete anymore. I'm not in favor of trying to uh, you know, prolong the, uh, the life of the coal industry through some sort of government subsidies or mandates or anything like that. But that's not all that's happened. It's also that the regulations have pushed up the price of electricity generation from coal, and that has been a government interference in the marketplace. Uh, what I want to see, really, is uh, is for freedom to reign and for the prices themselves to signal what's the best source for our energy. Now, we at the Cornwall Alliance for the Steward of Creation, we've been addressing this for a long time, and we're just about to bring out a, a new booklet called Fossil Fuels, The Moral Case, by a good friend of mine, uh, Dr. Kathleen Hartnett-White. She is a longtime specialist in these studies. And she really makes the case quite, quite powerfully that, there is, uh, that there's a really strong moral argument in favor of the use of fossil fuels. And it essentially condenses to this. Um, you know, prior to the Industrial Revolution, uh, the vast majority of energy that people used, and it was very, very little, uh, was either their own bodily energy or the energy of animals or the energy of slaves whom they, they oppressed. After the Industrial Revolution, as we began to switch much more to machine energy, 
um, whether that's by uh, you know burning coal or or natural gas or something else in a turbine and and spinning the turbine that way or by making electricity either way uh, this availability of machine energy that we get overwhelmingly from fossil fuels has freed us from all kinds of different limitations and we've seen uh, wealth rise and with the rising of wealth we've seen length of life and health rise as well. We've gone from average human life expectancy at birth under age 30 to uh, average human life expectancy at birth in developed countries now of about 80 years and this is largely attributable to the fact that we get so much energy uh, for our lives and around the world today about 86% of all the energy we use comes from fossil fuels. The cost of trying to back away from the fossil fuels and replace them all with non-fossil fuels is astronomical. Uh, One major study uh, was published a few years ago addressing that and found that it would come to well over 3% of gross domestic product every year for the entire world. That is way more than what... uh, the average person in developing countries or the average household in developing countries uh, earns every year. It would be devastating to the poor to try to do that. So we're going to be uh, uh, introducing this new booklet from the Cornwall Alliance shortly. We're just about to send it to the printer. And uh, I'm, I'm hopeful that a lot of your listeners will, uh, will sign up for our email newsletter at cornwallalliance.org and through that, they'll know when this booklet comes out. But we also have lots of other good educational resources, as you know. And so, again, I hope that your listeners will come to cornwallalliance.org, learn more, and uh, pay attention as, as we get ready to bring out this new booklet as well. Well, that sounds very exciting. Uh, today we've been talking with Dr. E. Calvin Beisner, founder and national spokesman for the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. Cal, we're out of time, but thank you so much, my dear brother for joining us today. Well, thank you, too, Dan. Appreciate it very much. And we do have one other thing we'd like for your listeners to look at, and that's a petition, a petition called Forget Climate Change, Energy Empowers the Poor. And that, too, is on our website. It's an opportunity for them to, uh, to say to our country's leaders, uh, this is the kind of policy that we want, a policy that protects the poor from the harms of misguided climate policy. Yeah, that is a very big deal. Thank you again, Cal. And, um, dear listener, you can join us again next week for another edition of A Plain Answer, and also up on our website if you want to listen to this interview again. It's up there at RedeemerBroadcasting.org. Cal, thanks for joining us. Great. Thank you, Dan. God bless. 